This is Wade's World, where we talk to the most interesting people in the world on KABF 88.3, the voice of the people. This is Wade Rafty, and you're listening to Wade's World, a Voice of the People program. Welcome to the east side of town so that we can talk about how the other half lives and what life is like here living in Wade's World, whether that's the east side of Little Rock, Greenville, or New Orleans, or on Acorn Radio in Nairobi, Kampala, Bengaluru, Bristol, or Bombay. Points east and west where we are either rebroadcast or live streamed at kbf.org, wamf.org, or acornradio.org. A podcast will be available of this show on these websites and at www.chieforganizer.org. You know the story on Wage World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. Today we're talking to Frank Vogel, who is the, uh, was the co-founder of Transparency International, is now a professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and he's written a very interesting, perhaps depressing book called The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, endangering our democracy. Welcome to Wage World, Frank. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Well, Frank, uh, your longtime experience working with uh, sort of in the belly of the beast and with Transparency International brought you to this book. But corruption, we keep hoping there's improvement, but this is a, can be a depressing read, isn't it? It can be. I I hope it's more of a realistic read. I hope people uh, see what's going on around them and in the world have dirty money, uh, which is a vast world, and appreciate, hey, we have to do something about this. And so if, in a way, the depressing story leads people to action, then that would be marvelous. Indeed. We've uh, dealt uh, over the in my real job over the years. I've dealt with a lot of banks, but uh, banks. I mean, the name of the book is Enablers. Banks are huge enablers of this money laundering and uh, actually, you know, just stealing money, aren't they? Well, think about it. You are. I you. I don't want to insult you, but just imagine you are Vladimir Putin sitting in the Kremlin and you have just uh, pocketed a few hundred million dollars uh, from the state-owned enterprise Gazprom, the biggest gas producer in the world, and you want to put it in your account. But you don't really want to invest it in Russia. You'd much prefer to own a few buildings down in Arkansas or New Orleans or Manhattan. How do you do that? You need people to help you to manage that money, to get it out of Russia, get it into the United States, and then get it into the real estate or stocks or bonds. The people you need to get that money from Moscow to Manhattan are bankers. And the bankers are the prime intermediaries facilitating the flow of stolen cash by authoritarian leaders in a hundred countries today and putting that stolen cash into the Western capital markets. But we hear about fines, uh, and I know one of the things you found encouraging was that there have been 
some new uh, statutes passed, even in the U.S. Congress, to try to deal with this. They pay fines, but they keep doing it, it seems. It's the fines have been increasing over the years, but they are fines to the institutions. They are fines to the banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, very familiar banks uh, that you and everybody knows about because they're really amongst the top largest banks in the world. They absorb these fines and then they go on and they do it again and again and again. And the reason is the top CEOs, the chairman of these banks are not held personally responsible. They are never prosecuted because we don't have laws that make them directly responsible, unfortunately. And at the same time, their boards of directors uh, think they're such great people and they keep on making more and more profit that they don't fire them either. So they keep their positions. They pay the fines as if they're just a cost of doing business. Well, and that's what I was about to, to say. This just seems to be a something on the, the bottom line, sometimes not even that significant <clears throat> report in their annual reports, just a part of the price of doing business. They seem to be making money even while they're paying the fines. Maybe I'm wrong. You're absolutely right. And it comes down to what are the values that should drive the biggest corporations, for example, in the United States, and in fact, all corporations. And if one of those values is not integrity, and another is not honesty, then I think we as a society are in trouble. And when you look at the incredible bonuses that the top people in finance, and the enablers, by the way, is not just the bankers, it's the auditors, it's the financial lawyers, it's the real estate brokers. When you look at the bonuses that these people get when they're at the top of these big financial institutions, you can understand the incentive to keep on, keep on making money. And, of course, with that side of incentive, values such as integrity and honesty, frankly, they go by the board. These, uh, the notion of uh, – in Switzerland, there used to – I mean, they used to be famous for – uh, hiding these accounts uh, secretly. And I, I read or understand, and you'll tell me if that's correct, that they've, they've, uh, there have been some steps to, in Switzerland and with the way that U.S. and other countries deal with Switzerland to stop that. Is, is that working? To some extent. Uh, the U.S. led the charge uh, in fact, it was the office of the Manhattan District Attorney quite a few years ago that led the charge against Swiss banks helping Americans to avoid and really evade, criminally evade taxes uh, by, by opening secret accounts in Switzerland. The prosecutions of the Swiss banks by the U.S. authorities led the Swiss banks to tighten up their rules with regard to U.S. citizens. But they still maintain banking secrecy. They still operate in a way that is, frankly, so undercover that every kleptocrat in the world uses Swiss banks. And the number of cases that we have seen in terms of international corruption or in terms of tax evasion that have evolved Swiss banks 
or branches of international banks that are based in Switzerland is just enormous. The, uh, and I guess even for U.S. citizens, if you had multiple passports, uh, could you also continue to have secret bank accounts in Switzerland? Yes, but, you know, it's illegal. And you don't even need multiple passports because the way the international system works is you can create companies or other, you can get lawyers, lawyers as enablers, to cre- help create companies in South Dakota, in Delaware, in Wisconsin, and of course the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, offshore. Companies that never ask who is the, never register, who is the real owner of this account. So they become secretive holding companies. And what a lot of people do is they create one of these, and then their lawyers create another and another and another, and you have a whole pyramid of different holding companies all connected. And they move money from one to the next, and they move it offshore. They move it into secret bank accounts. For example, do you remember Paul Manafort? Sure. Uh, Of course. Uh, Paul Manafort, one time Donald Trump campaign manager, when he was arrested on banking fraud, it turned out he used 23 different offshore holding companies and bank accounts. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's... uh, uh, I hate to even think about how many thousands of accounts uh, a corporation, some bank like uh, Citicorp or whatever might have, um, uh, 10,000. That, that, that's true, but there's a difference. They, they may have – these very large corporations themselves may have many accounts in many countries, but they don't uh, go out of their way to hide those accounts. The, now, are there uh, other they, countries that have tried to – you know, take the place of Switzerland to be able to facilitate these secret accounts? Oh, there are so many places today. You can talk about Luxembourg and Cyprus and Malta uh, and many others. But what the Swiss have, like, like our own bankers here in the U.S., like the British, like uh, the French, and to some extent the Germans, is a long history of sophisticated international banking with enormous contacts, with enormous technological systems that can move money between accounts and in and out of countries in a split second. And today, when we talk about the dirty money of the kleptocrats, we're talking so much money that it has to move fast. And for that, you need sophisticated banking institutions as your partner, as your enabler. Don't forget... um, The amount of dirty money that comes just into the United States every year, that means money stolen by authoritarian regimes and also by organized crime, uh, probably is bigger than the total annual sales of Walmart, the largest retailer uh, in the world. More than $600 billion a year, an unimaginably huge amount of money. You need sophisticated banking systems to handle the amounts of money that are actually moving through the global financial system. We're talking to Frank Vogel, who's a professor at Georgetown University, uh, has been involved with Transparency International for a long time, has written a book called The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption, Endangering Our Democracy. 
Frank, the banks aren't alone. Um, this uh, notion of you mentioned our friend uh, Vladimir Putin investing in real estate, hypothetically, or, or in reality in Manhattan. There's a new law in the U.S. where ownership would have to be revealed, right? That's correct. One of the really important landmarks in recent years in the world of anti-corruption is that uh, exactly one year ago today, uh, or 3rd of January actually last year, the Congress passed the Corporate Transparency Act, and that forces all companies that invest, for example, in real estate or invest through these anonymous holding companies in the U.S. to register with the U.S. Treasury who is the true beneficial owner of that company. Now, the regulations have still not been finalized, and you can just imagine the lobbying that's going on by the lawyers and the bankers and the real estate people to try to make sure that these regulations have lots of loopholes uh, to obviously safeguard the businesses that uh, make them a lot of cash and help corrupt people around the world. We've tried to do a lot of real estate uh, research on who really owns things because we organized tenants and trying to figure out who the real landlord is as opposed to the manager is often part of the issue. As I understand that act, Frank, and you may know better, it's sort of any new corporation has to reveal it at a certain dateline and existing corporations have some number of years in order to comply. Is that... Uh... That, that looks as if that's what the regulations, actually that's what the law, but then how do you interpret the regulations, uh, the law? And this is what the Treasury is now finalizing. And it looks as if what you just said is absolutely right. After all, you know, um, we don't know. Just to give you one example, we have no idea at all about how much Chinese money has gone into U.S. real estate. And who those Chinese people are, behind those investments and whether those investments whether the money was shipped out of China legally or what the whether the cash was obtained in the first place legally or illegally and that is the key issue it's a scandal that real estate brokers art dealers uh, sellers of yachts uh, are not obliged under law as of right now to ask a client, where did you get your money to buy, you know, this $80 million yacht, this $50 million condo in Manhattan? They are under no obligation to do due diligence to determine where the money comes from. And it could be stolen money. And I believe, and, and many others who have done a lot of work and research over many years into this, that a huge amount of this cash is stolen money. And one of the major downsides, of course, is let's take real estate. This money is flooding into our real estate markets and pushing up prices in ways that push out a lot of local residents and local citizens. There are obviously places like Vancouver where there are now rules on uh, foreign ownership of real estate because of I mean, it's almost been impossible for years to afford real estate in Vancouver. But and because of this, there's huge are, chi know, Chinese, in Chinese investment in Vancouver. Exactly. Um, and but I think you know, there there's, there's a commission 
uh, in British Columbia that's been looking into corruption in Vancouver. And it keeps on delaying and delaying, and everybody's convinced that when it comes out with its final report, it will basically gloss over a lot because it's probably been lobbied by a lot of vested investment interests who really don't want too much of the truth to, to be made public. This is such an irony because uh, a first-time homeowner in the U.S. trying to get a mortgage and, you know, has to prove that the money, you know, wasn't a gift from somebody or that if it came from their, you know, if it's a child, if it came from their parents, that it's limited to X, Y, Z for them to get a loan. Yet, if you've got a $10 million to $100 million to a $1 billion, you don't have to say anything, Frank. I mean, that's well, just... but, you know, and, and a lot of that money, it's not just domestically earned money that they're competing with. It's this foreign money and this foreign dirty money they're competing with. And you can understand why so many American citizens and European citizens, for that matter, but believe that there is something corrupt in the government system itself, that too much money is influencing our politics and um, and that that is perceived to be corrupt and it results in a lack of trust in government. And the reason why I have written this book right now is because I want people to understand the linkage between the corrupt money flows and the health of our democracy, because well, this is a political issue and not just a financial one. Well, and you mentioned earlier the role of lobbyists, even on the regulations on real estate ownership that we're talking about. I mean, that's part of this sort of power of lobbyists and how much money they put into politics, whether it's campaigns or, you know, whining and dining or whatever. I mean, this is part of why so many Americans are skeptical of this country. And absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. The uh, I, I thought you were going on. But, I mean, the Panama Papers um, yes. is something that you treat, uh, you know, fairly extensively in the book. Did that really um, help the cause of transparency? Because certainly it shed a very harsh light on a number of political and other leaders and and their investments in, in secret holdings through the Panama law firm. Yes, it certainly helped. And, um, you know, it was followed up by uh, the Paradise Papers and then the Pandora Papers. And the International Consortium of, Indi of, uh, of Journalists, which is the group that got managed to get all these leaks of millions and millions of emails and documents relating to individual cases of corruption and tax evasion, they, the sum impact of that has been to hugely influence public opinion and poli politicians with regard to these secret holding companies. And the Corporate Transparency Act that we just talked about, I think is a direct result of the exposure that massive investigations like the Panama Papers brought to the public. And the same kind of laws against secret companies that we're, gonna, we're seeing here evolving uh, at the same time also moving ahead in much of Western Europe about time. Indeed. Now, I think that law firm uh, ended up being forced out of business, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, it's a Panamanian law firm. They, uh, uh, it's called Fonseca, and they, they, they 
11 million emails uh, from their various different accounts uh, fell into the hands of these journalists, which caused, which was the basis of the Panama Papers. But, you know, there are so many of these law firms. These are the quintessential enablers, uh, and they don't have to operate out of Panama. They could operate out of Miami and, and Vancouver and Toronto and Manhattan and, of course, London. London is perhaps... Um, a crucial center for enablers in many different uh, areas of corrupt business. Uh, and in fact, one British government report actually talked about London grad because there was so much Russian money invested in property in London. Now, at some time, there was speculation that Brexit might change the role of London for financial activities, but probably not in this area. There is no indication that it is in this area at all. And, um, you know, it's interesting. The pressure uh, in this area on the U.K. government to tighten its anti-corruption rules has resulted in more investigations of banks by the British uh, justice authorities than ever before. But the fines that have resulted, I mean, are absolutely puny. Um, and are unlikely to change the situation at all. Uh, but we need to understand, I think, that what we're talking about is not just the cash. If you consider, for example, today in Kazakhstan, thousands of people are protesting against their government and one of the major complaints they have is the corruption in their government and the way their government has been stealing public money with the result that the top government leaders are multi-billionaires and people across the country are suffering we've seen the same in belarus we see the same in so many other countries in other words, there is a movement across the world of citizens becoming more and more angry about governmental corruption and about the theft of their hard-earned money uh, and, of course, the transport of that money, the transfer of the money out of the country into Beverly Hills mansions and so on. Exactly. We're talking to Frank Vogel, who's a professor at Georgetown University, who's written a book, The Enablers, How the West Supports Kleptocrats and Corruption Endangering Our Democracy. Frank, what, uh, you know, in the book, you look at enforcement as a key area that we need to move in. What needs to be done more to, to stop this? I, enforcement is absolutely key. What's the point of having laws on the books if they're not enforced? So we need to ramp up greatly the resources the funds that the fbi has and the u.s treasury has to undertake investigations and if necessary prosecutions we need to have a law that holds the chairman and the ceo of major financial institutions personally responsible when their institutions break the law we can't keep on having a system where they just pay fines and that's the cost of doing business. They must be held personally responsible. And we have a precedent in that because after the Enron scandal and the WorldCom scandal 20 years ago, Congress passed a law, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, that made the chairman and chief financial officer personally responsible for the honesty of the financial accounts. And if 
it was found that they were signing off papers that were not honest, uh, that was a criminal offense. We need something similar in the anti-corruption area. But we also need, and this is so important, not just new laws, not just more uh, enforcement. We need a cultural change. And I believe that citizens, by campaigning, just as they're campaigning for uh, companies to be much more environmentally sensitive, so we need citizens to campaign far more to see that companies have values of integrity and honesty and serve the public interest and not just their personal bank accounts. You were involved for a long time with Transparency International. Uh, what kind of role are they able to play in, in this uh, fight to get to campaign, particularly around the world, uh, to make these reforms? Uh, Thank you for that question. Uh, a few of us, a handful of us, started Transparency International in 1993 as the first international anti-corruption, not-for-profit organization. We have our headquarters in Berlin, Germany. Today, we operate in 100 countries. We have what we call 100 national chapters. Uh, that's the Transparency International movement. Every one of those national chapters is headed and staffed by citizens of the country in which they reside. This is not some sort of international organization full of American expatriates. Uh, citizens lead the chapters. They are working on the ground. They are, for example, monitoring health clinics to see that the vaccines for COVID reach people honestly and that citizens don't have to pay bribes to the clinics to get the vaccine. They are monitoring public accounts of governments to the extent that they can to see that public procurement for major infrastructure is honest and transparent. Many of these people are operating in countries where they take huge risks by trying to speak uh, truth to power. Uh, and as you know, Navalny in Moscow uh, is in prison. Um, there are many anti-corruption people who are in prison in Turkey, in China, uh, in Egypt, of course, um, as well as many journalists who investigate corruption. This is a dangerous game, and I'm constantly inspired by the courage and the work and the, in many cases, the successes that many of these people in many, many countries uh, are able to enjoy. Frank, I mentioned as we were beginning, uh, right before we started the interview, that one of the things I enjoyed about the book is you've worn a number of hats. And frequently uh, in the book, you'll see, uh, for those of you who, who come to this uh, volume, you'll see instances where Frank was speaking at this thing or at a meeting with this banker or this regulator or whatever. And they said X, Y, Z, and then Frank will have something where he says, and, and here's what they then did, or here's what the reality was. Um, that was an enjoyable part of the book. Uh, did you get much feedback so far from some of your former friends? No, I haven't, um, although I will be on a panel with one of them uh, in a few weeks' time. But I have to tell you, you know, I was very lucky. I started as an jo international journalist and covered um, 
lots of corruption cases as a reporter. Uh, then I became a, the um, got into the communications business and served uh, the chairman of the largest banking organizations in the world as a communications advisor. And um, some of those people, uh, it transpired, were also running institutions that were highly engaged in in money laundering activities. And that gave me a, a seat at the table. And what struck me, and I put it in the book, is that it was constantly amazing how the determination to do a deal somehow pushed aside any issues of ethics, any issues of risk of corruption, because when you do a deal, you get your fee, and then you're out of there. Right. And so I sat at the table uh, working with a banking consortium to renegotiate the biggest debt crisis that Greece ever had, where it owed the banks $270 billion. And I asked myself, did these bankers ever, ever look at the scale of corruption in Greece? Didn't they ever realize that they were going to lose their shirts if they kept on putting the money into Greece? Well, the answer is very simple. It wasn't the bankers' own money. They were putting money of insurance companies and pension funds and all sorts of institutional investors into the bonds of those countries. What the bankers were doing were taking the fees for arranging the deals. And so long as we have a system like that, we face enormous risk to the credibility of fundamentally the free market system itself. Frank, it's take the money and run, but I want uh, people to know where they can get the enablers, your new book. Well, thank you for that. It's very widely available on all the your know, typical online booksellers from uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and and all the others. And um, uh, not just here, but now internationally. And uh, I, I, I really appreciate you asking me this. There are, it's so important that the public understands the threat to democracy and to security of a system that we, our government, we can control. If we can curb the activities of the enablers on behalf of the world's corrupt, kleptocratic, authoritarian leaders, our democracy will be safer, and we will have greater sense of security. Keep campaigning and writing, Frank Vogel. This has uh, been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams saying, things you've never seen will never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Daryl Foundation, a progressive force enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, we say it loud, we say it on the air. We say it on the radio. Until next week when we'll have another guest, this is Wade Rathke from Wage World. Thank you.